right, so um, this morning I'm going to be giving you your, the, the last sermon in this, um, in this series on Matthew. Um, and remember, I'm not done with the book of Matthew, but uh, if I were to go straight through the book of Matthew from beginning to end, it would probably take us about two years. Uh, it would be an exhaustive and exhausting uh, sermon series. So uh, today is going to be the last one in this. And next year, or next year, well, it might be actually next year. Uh, next year, early next year, I'll get back into Matthew chapter 5. And in that chunk, I'll probably just do the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is three chapters uh, in the book of Matthew, but it is very, very dense. And I'm looking forward to it. I'm actually probably going to listen to a, a sermon series that a friend of mine is just now finishing up. A, a good friend of mine who's a pastor, he's, he's, uh, he's, he's going through, he's in Matthew chapter 7 right now. So when he's done with that, I think I'll go back through and start listening to some of his sermons on it. Um, because I, I really respect him as a, as a scholar. Um, but anyway, in the first few chapters of Matthew, uh, we see Jesus foretold. We see Jesus, uh, his, the history, the heritage, the history of his whole, whole life leading up to his birth. We see the impact of his birth locally and globally. We see his victory in the temptation. Genesis chapter 3 is the fall of man, the failure of man in temptation. But in Matthew chapter is it three or is it four? Uh, I think it's the beginning of chapter four, isn't it? Um, is his temptation, and it's his victory over temptation. Man's failure in in, uh, in, in temptation is what we see in Genesis. Jesus' victory in temptation is what we see in Matthew. And then we see him really start in earnest. And last week we were talking about how he called disciples. And when he called disciples, they dropped what they did, were doing, and they just followed him. So I would... Uh, assert that to you again today. Uh, Jesus is worth dropping everything for. When Jesus calls, when you hear the gospel call, when the gospel call is given to you, and when you are given the choice, follow Jesus or follow the world, follow myself, whatever, follow Jesus. Uh, it, it, is a, uh, it is never a bad decision. Follow Jesus. Drop everything and follow Jesus. Because I, I promise you, I don't know you, but I promise you this. If you're not following Jesus, you're carrying around some buckets of gravel with you everywhere you they are heavy, and they are wearing you out, and they are worthless. But if you'll drop everything and follow Jesus, you'll drop that gravel, and he'll give you a diamond. Much smaller, much lighter. Put it in your pocket. You won't even know it's there. It's such a light burden to carry and much more valuable than a couple of buckets of rocks. Okay? That's what it's like to follow Jesus. And we saw him calling disciples and, and giving them the message and replicating himself in them, they are going to become like him. It's not a pretty picture when they start trying to become like Jesus. They get it wrong. They get it right sometimes. Uh, and when, when we do the same thing, it, it's, it's hard to become like Jesus. You've got to unlearn everything you've learned. You've got to start doing everything the opposite way, thinking differently, because everything that Jesus does is upside down. It's completely illogical from a human standpoint, but it's perfectly logical from a heavenly standpoint. We've got to start learning to be more like him. And today, we're going to see um, what, what I sort of call the three-tiered or three-fold ministry of Jesus, okay? Uh, and let's get into our passage. Let's pray before we do. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us. Lord, help us to be good students. Help us to be good disciples. Help us to emulate you in everything Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, 
teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. And so the, um, the commentary that I was reading uh, is by a guy named William Barclay, um, and he, the way he sort of exegetes, that's a theological word for it, exposes, lays everything out in this, um, in this passage, I thought it was just brilliant because he saw this threefold ministry uh, that Jesus was performing here. And he talks about him first going out proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, going out proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And he says he's doing this, he's doing this in an effort to, mission one, defeat ignorance, defeat ignorance. Uh, and of course, this word ignorance is often an insult. You, you ignorant fool, you are ignorant. But it's, uh, uh, but don't think of it that way. Just think of, of people saying, you know what? I didn't know. I lived in darkness all of these years, and I just didn't know. I didn't know anything about God. I had no idea what God wanted from me. I was completely ignorant of everything. And then here comes Jesus, the Messiah, and he tells me. And it, the, what he told me, the information that he gave me, completely changed everything of, uh, about the way I saw life. Um, God has revealed himself to us in the Bible and in nature. God has revealed himself. If God had not revealed himself to us, we would be ignorant. It is a terrible thing to be ignorant. If there is a piece of key information in your work, in a game, in a school, in anything, and you're doing things the wrong way, but somebody comes along and says, oh, by the way, it should be set to this instead of that. Well, that just changes everything. And, and the and, 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 and when you're doing things with the wrong settings, everything becomes frustrating. All of life becomes frustrating. Everything you're wanting to accomplish becomes frustrating, and you hurt more than you help. But when somebody comes along and says, no, actually it's this way, and then everything just falls into place, everything just works, and you say, oh, how could I have been so ignorant for so long? How could I have not known that? How could I have not seen that? Thankfully, somebody came by and told me, and I'm not living in ignorance any, anymore, and life has changed. And so Jesus has come along here to defeat our ignorance. We were ignorant of God, and God has now revealed himself to us. We're no longer ignorant. We know something. Nowhere is, is this sort of illustrated uh, better than in the Old Testament. There's a place in 2 Kings where there's a young king named Josiah. And a lot of people are named Josiah these days. It's a good, it's a good, uh, he's a good person to name somebody after, is King Josiah. In the, in the Old Testament, there are, oh, I don't know how many kings. There's so many kings that follow. You know, we all know David, and we all know Solomon. And if you're a good Bible scholar, you may even know Solomon's son. Solomon's son was Rehoboam. Well, Rehoboam the knucklehead, I will call him, okay? Because he start, sort of starts this descent where you have good king, bad king, good king, bad king, but they really are getting worse. The good aren't quite as good, and the bad are way worse each time. Okay? So uh, in the days of King Josiah, people had gotten quite ignorant of God. They had gotten quite ignorant. Uh, the temple of God, the temple of God in, in Jerusalem should look like this. It should look like this, okay? Uh, what you have here out in front is this bronze altar, big, huge altar. Everybody brings their sacrifices to the one here. 
behind that is this big uh, washing bath thing for the priests to use to cleanse themselves in. And then you come into the temple area, and there are two rooms in the temple, um, two big rooms in the middle of the temple. One of them is called the holy place, and you walk in, and over here there's an enormous menorah made out of gold, lighted over here with olive oil. It's beautiful. And of course, I never saw it. Nobody ever saw it. But, uh, and on the left side over here, there's this golden table, and on the golden table there are 12 loaves of bread from, from each of the tribes of Israel to present to God, some bread to give uh, to give to God. Beautiful place in there. And then in front of you is this little golden incense altar burning a very special kind of incense. The, the mixture of, of all the things that were in this incense were, were very prescribed, very, very specific. And, and it was supposed to only be used there. You couldn't say, hey, you know what, I'd like to take some of this home and burn it and make, make my house smell good. No, 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 no. This is only for the temple. And then beyond the temple, in the New Testament, it's a veil. But in Solomon's temple, it's accordion doors that are in the temple. Of course, everything's overlaid with gold inside this room. Okay, So you, you can imagine going into a room. It doesn't have fluorescent lights. It has um, this lighted with this big menorah. But the light from that lamp is, is sort of flashing off everything that's made of gold Okay, inside this room. A really neat place to be inside. And then you smell this wonderful mixture of, of incense. But then beyond the, the accordion doors, it's scary there's the Ark of the Covenant. It's the same one that Indiana Jones found in Egypt. Okay? I'm just kidding. But actually, that movie, their replica of the Ark, is very accurate, I think. And at the end of the movie, when the guy blows up because he's opened up the Ark, the, 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 the priestly garb that he's wearing, it's actually very accurate. I looked at it one time. It's actually very accurately done. Um, Steven Spielberg made this movie. He's Jewish. He knows what the priest should look like, what the priest should wear. Okay, we know that. But step into there, the golden box, big angels, uh, big statues of angels overseeing the ark there, the most holy place. That's what that place is called, the holy of holies or the most holy place. That's what it should be like. That's what it should be like, except that it, right before Josiah, Josiah's father, grandfather, these were knucklehead kings who had been bad. They had really polluted the pure worship of God. And so, very ignorantly, they had not just had this temple, but they, they brought in things like this. Up there on the, uh, the upper left, that's, a, that's an idol of Baal. If you read the Old Testament, B-A-A-L, there's a God that they have trouble worshiping all the time. They always want to get away from worshiping Yahweh God, Jehovah God, um, God the God of Israel, and they'll bring in Baal worship. Well, that's Baal. And then down here in the lower right, that's the golden calf. Um, the golden calf that they worshipped in Exodus when Moses came down from the mountain, that's what it looked like. And that was a very common deity over in those days. And it seems like it took them, a, it took them centuries to really get the golden calf out of their temple, when the, uh, out of their religious life. When the kingdom split, this is for the Bible scholars. If you, know, if you remember Rehoboam, because he was a knucklehead, uh, there, there became a rift in all of Israel, and there became northern Israel and southern Israel. There became Israel and Judah is what there became. And there was a king in northern Israel named Jeroboam, also Jeroboam the knucklehead. And he didn't want people to go to Jerusalem to worship, so he set up two temples in, in northern Israel. And what was the centerpiece of those uh, temples? Golden calf. Golden calf. The, the very same type of golden calf that they had gotten in trouble for worshiping in, in Exodus. Because of their ignorance, they start bringing in foreign gods. Not only that, Egyptian totems. Not only that, they start burning other kinds of incense, not prescribed by the Lord God. They even bring in 
temple party. The, the temple should really just be, when you walk in, it should just be Levites and priests. Uh, the, the, the descendants of Aaron should be the ones doing all the work in there. But look what they bring in. This sort of specialized, perverted religion that they brought in. It's all part of this Baal worship. And then they start sacrificing animals that are not, that are not flawless. You're supposed to bring a flawless lamb to sacrifice to the Lord, but they start bringing in any old goat with uh, broken leg, hoof rot, pink eye, whatever it's got. They start bringing it in because they don't want to eat it, and it's not going to be any good for, for breeding for me. Let's go ahead and give that to God, all out of ignorance. And so what happened? What happened in their country? Everything deteriorated in the whole country because God had removed his blessing from it. And the temple got really worn down, got really, got really ratty, ratty in there. And, and Josiah, he becomes king. And he becomes king at the age of 16, just a kid. And he starts thinking about, okay, what's the king supposed to do? What am I going to do for my kingdom? So he rides around Jerusalem, and I'm sure his house is in fine, fine shape. But he starts looking around house of God, and he says, boy, we've really got some problems, don't we? I think we need a few, uh, a few bricks to be patched, and I think we need a fresh coat of paint. We need something in here, because boy, this place is just looking like a trash heap. And he tells all the priests, I want you to um, go through everything, okay? Let's clean everything up here. Let's make it nice and new and shiny like it's supposed to be. And what you see in this, uh, let me go back to the previous slide. The most famous thing about Josiah is that while those priests, and all of them ignorant, all of them ignorant of what God wants, they start looking through all the closets in the back rooms of the temple, and somebody finds a, a box. And they open up the box, and inside the box is a scroll. And they say, oh, I wonder what this could be. It's probably just accounting or something like that. They start unrolling it. And they get to the first problem, and it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. Oh, my goodness. We thought this wasn't around anymore. We thought this was lost. We thought this was gone. We found the book of the law. And they rush and tell the king, they say, we found something. It's the law of God. We heard the stories about our ancestors and how they worshiped and what God was like. We found that book. We thought it was lost. But here it is. And Josiah said, bring it to me at once. I want to read it. And so they come together and they start reading the law of God. And imagine being that person, being those people, performing the religious duties of a God that you really don't know. You've forgotten all of these years. And all of a sudden, you start reading things like, you will have no other gods before me. start reading about there's only one kind of incense. It's not a perverted, sexualized religion, and don't bring me any animal that's lame or blind or dying for your sacrifice. And they say, oh, wow. We've been doing this wrong all this time. How many centuries, how many generations has it been that we haven't been doing this right? And that's why our religion is all crumbling. And Josiah says, all right, that's it. Get rid of them. Everything out here that's not supposed to be there, you get rid of it. Go throughout the whole land. Get rid of them all. 
Tell everybody. Start reading this law so that everybody knows what we're supposed to be doing. And in very short order, everything gets restored like it should have been. And Josiah becomes somebody worth naming your son and your grandson after. Because he is the one who defeated the ignorance of the people. He didn't say, well, just put that book away. we got a good thing going. I don't think everybody needs to know this. We've got to, you know, it's, it's fine. We're sitting with God. It's fine. I don't want to do some kind of radical reform. He didn't do that. He said, we've been living in ignorance, and I don't want to be living in ignorance anymore, and I don't want my people living in ignorance anymore. Let's tell them what they need to know so that we are living under God's blessing again. And so maybe some of you have, have felt like that in your life, that you hear you maybe gone to church for a long time, but you really never got into it. And then finally one day you opened up the Bible and you started reading it and you said, wow, that's very different. That's a different idea. And I would encourage you, read the Sermon on the Mount. Read Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Uh, if you don't know those verses very well, if you don't know those chapters very well, you'll start reading through that and you'll say, oh, wow, I thought I was pretty nice. I thought I was pretty good. I thought I was doing it right. Jesus takes us to a different level start examining your life against the Bible, you will start to find out uh, how ignorant you've been. I have found that out many times, reading through the Bible. Oh, how ignorant I have been. How have I been living? And it doesn't please God. And it's not the right way. It's not the wise way uh, to live. And that's what Jesus does to the people. And he starts preaching. He starts defeating all of their ignorance. Get rid of the ignorance. Bring in the truth of God. Mission number two for him uh, is to defeat misunderstanding. Wait a second, Wes. Isn't ignorance and misunderstanding the same thing? Uh, no, it's really not. It's really not. Ignorance is when you have uh, no idea, no understanding uh, of a subject matter. Misunderstanding is when you think you know, but you don't. You think you know, but your ideas are wrong. You think you know, but your ideas are wrong. Uh, so if Think of, think of it this way. You're out in the world, or you're, maybe you're in Sunday school class, and the teacher uh, raises this question and says, okay, what does it mean to be a Christian? And you start uh, giving them back answers, and all of those answers are wrong. Okay, You thought you knew what it meant to be a Christian. You thought you knew what God meant about something. Every once in a while, I'll throw out a pop quiz, quiz question here, and from time to time, I'll have to correct it. Somebody says, no, 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 it's not there. Whatever. Okay? Most of it's just little tidbits and facts. It's no big deal. You really misunderstand what faith is, what following the Lord is, uh, what um, life and relationships should be like, what marriage should be like, what raising kids should be like, what a work ethic should be like. If you really misunderstand that from the Bible, well, you can give the Lord a bad name. You can really start to uh, sort of profane what it means to be a Christian. And so here comes Jesus, and, and he's teaching in the synagogue. Okay, and synagogue worship, synagogue worship. What is synagogue worship like? It, it, it our worship here, our worship in Protestant churches and in the church is really sort of based on synagogue worship, except it wouldn't look at all the same. In synagogue worship, uh, everybody comes in, and it's really, in the, at this time especially, it's really only men, um, but uh, people would come in, and they would start, uh, they wouldn't do praise and worship songs, they would chant prayers, and the chants are done, the, the prayers are done in sort of a sing-songy way, so it almost sounds like praise and worship music, or, or sounds like worship music, and it is worship music, why, why wouldn't I say it's worship music? But it's prayers done in a sing-songy way. If you ever watch Fiddler on the Roof, sometimes you can you can you can you hear them pray, and they pray in a, in a really a chanting or a sing-songy way. 
Um, so that's what it would start out. And then somebody would come up and take the scroll, and they would open it up, and they would start reading. Uh, they would read a passage, and everybody would say amen, and they would sit down. And then somebody else would come up and sort of give a teaching. Maybe it was based on, on the reading that was done. They would, they would, they would give a, uh, a teaching. And then after that, uh, people would get to ask questions. People would get to interact. People would get to dialogue about it. Uh, and if somebody was presenting ideas that they didn't like, uh, maybe they could push back against it. Don't you mean this? Shouldn't it be this way? Why would you just say? Why would you say that? And the the teacher would get to explain things more or defend a, a position or an idea. Now, the difference between preaching and teaching. Right now, I'm preaching. It's a monologue. Everything's going this way. The only thing that's coming back this way is facial expressions, and you do a great job. But when it comes to teaching, teaching becomes a dialogue. It's a dialogue, and that's one of the reasons I, I started that. Wednesday night class that I did because I wanted some dialogue here. I wanted people to be able to ask questions because I, I also want to be a part of defeating misunderstandings. And so we see Jesus several times in, uh, in, in the, the New Testament, in the Gospels. He's preaching, all right? Sermon on the Mount, we don't see anybody asking questions back. We see him just preaching. It's all just going one way. But nearly every other, can I say this? Many other significant passages in the Gospels are there because somebody came up to Jesus with a question. This first picture over here on the upper right, Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus with questions, all right, to engage in dialogue with him. We wouldn't have John 3.16 if it wasn't for Nicodemus coming to Jesus with some questions. Um, we have the woman on, at the well here, all right, he interacts with her. It's a dialogue. It's not a sermon that he's giving to one person. Uh, she comes up, and he says, give me a drink of water. And she's flabbergasted. And it starts a conversation, and it ends with, go tell everybody to come here so I can proclaim the gospel to you. All right? It's teaching. Here we have the rich young ruler uh, who comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to be saved? Great question. Pose that question to me any time. And this rich young man, he's the essence of misunderstanding. Because he says, you know, there's ten commandments, and I got four or five of them down pat. In fact, I got the merit badge to prove it. I must be good. All right? And he's, he's sort of like, is that it? Is that all there is? It's so easy to be saved. I got, these, I got this, these four merit badges. I must be good to go. Thanks a lot. Is there anything else? And if he had just not said, is there anything else? He might have gone away happy. But, Jesus, but he said, look at Jesus says, is that all there is? Is there anything else? What else? Come on. Is there another? Surely there's another merit badge I can get. These things are so easy. And Jesus says, all right, if you really want to do more, if you really want to impress me, I'm glad you followed these commands. That's good. If you really want to impress me, if that's the deal, then go sell everything you have. Give it to the poor and follow me. And the kid says, why didn't I just keep my money? But I'm glad he didn't. Not for his sake, but for our sake. Because Jesus defeated misunderstanding in that passage. Read it. Go just type in Google, the rich young ruler, to get all the passages you need about it, okay? Many of us, we think we know this book. We think we know exactly what God wants. We think we know everything. We become, you know, in the beginning, as, as, uh, as new believers, we can be very much like a little freshman going around, don't know where everything is. We really need somebody to help us out. But after we've read the New Testament or one of the Gospels a few times, we got this. We know most of the worship songs. We're comfortable in church. We've helped out around here a little bit. We become very sophomoric in everything that we do. And what we do is we start, we start having ideas. We start thinking we know everything. 
And I don't know how, I don't know how old I was <laughs> when I finally got out of that phase. But I was probably in that phase for six or eight years. And you make a fool out of yourself. And there are a few sermons from back in my younger days that I'd say, whew, I'm glad nobody taped that. Or I hope nobody taped that. Or it was in, on cassette tape. At least now nobody can play that. I've got some pretty sophomoric sermons out there. And I'm glad that at some point I asked a question or I read a book or somebody rebuked me or whatever and defeated misunderstanding in my life. You probably have some misunderstandings in your life defeated. And let me, let me help you out with that. Let me, give you, let me give you some things to do. This is what I want you to do. On the drive home today, on the drive home today, I want the driver to ask these questions, okay? You ask the questions, the person in the passenger seat can give the answer. Everybody's going to volunteer to drive home, okay? <laughs> but the driver, I want you to look at the person in the passenger seat, and I want you to say, what does it mean to be a Christian? And the person in the passenger seat, I don't want you to just give a pat answer. Say, oh, just, just you believe in Jesus. No, not good enough. Tell me everything that you know about what it means Christian. Talk until your misunderstanding is revealed, or you say, that's it. That's all I got. Maybe there's more to it. Find out how much you know. Find out how much you understand. And the only way to do that is to articulate it. Say it out loud to another person. Start that conversation. Who is Jesus? Pretty central to our faith, right? Talk about it until you can't talk about it anymore. Talk about it until you say, I'm not sure that's right. I said that, but is that really right? I'm not sure that's right. And then confirm, am I right or am I wrong? Be the kind of person who says, I want to know when I'm wrong. I don't have to be right all the time. I want to know when I'm wrong. I know, you know, do, do I have perfect doctrine? Do, am, am I really so arrogant that I would think that I have perfect doctrine? Absolutely not. I don't know how much of my doctrine is wrong, though. And I don't know which of my doctrines are wrong. I don't know what needs to be tweaked. But my view of Jesus, my view of the Bible, my view of what it means to be a Christian needs to be adjusted and maturing all the time. I'm not going to throw wholesale doctrines out or anything like that. But I do need to be tweaking all the time. When was the last time some of your understanding of Jesus, of the Bible, of the doctrine of salvation, of God, of eternal life, of ethics and morals, when was the last time any of those views of yours changed? If they haven't changed in a while, start saying to the Lord, Lord, maybe I need to take a step forward in defeating misunderstanding in my life. Show me which doctrine, which belief, which ethic, which whatever I need to start learning more about. Okay? What did Jesus do? What is a sin? Talk about those things. What does it mean to worship? All of those are very good, very simple uh, questions about Christian doctrine to get you started. And on the way home, just pick one of those and talk about it until your, your ignorance is revealed or your misunderstanding is revealed. And then let Jesus start defeating misunderstanding in your life. And if you know you, if you, know you don't know something, and if you know that one of, some of your understanding about, about some doctrine, some teaching is wrong, well, this is what I want you to do. I want you to ask a question. 
I want you to be so bold as to say, hi, there's something I don't know, and I want to know, and I need to know. Or, hey, I have this idea. Is that right? Is that correct? And there are plenty of people around here you can go to with it. You can come to me with it. You can come to Stacy with it. She's one of our elders here. She's giving me a horrified look. But I trust her, her uh, understanding of these things. She's just being, she knows how to Google things. I would send you to Richard. Richard's very horrified. But Richard Delgado might be one of the best Bible students in our, in our church. He's got all kinds of questions. He reads it. And I mean, he doesn't skim the Bible. He really reads it and absorbs it. And he gets troubled by things that it says. That's great. Who interacts with the text so well that they're troubled by it? Okay? Take your questions to Richard. All right? He'll be a, he's, a very, he's a very humble man. He'll be a very humble teacher. Take it to Dale. Dale sits out here on the couches on, uh, every once in a while. Just find him and say, hey, I got a question. What do, I, what do I say about this? What do you say about this? Diane is our resident Sunday school teacher. She knows. She can tell you. She can answer your questions. And Ed probably can too. Ed doesn't want to ever be up here in front of people. But I say, give your questions to Ed too. If he doesn't know, he needs to know. And he needs to be able uh, to articulate those things. Anybody here that's an elder, anybody here that teaches a Bible class, an opportunity, bring your questions. Defeat your misunderstandings. Want to be correct. We won't ever be 100% correct until Jesus completely reveals everything to us. Work to defeat all of the ignorance that you have about things and all the misunderstanding that you have about things. And always be humble and don't ever just say, I've got this and it's obviously 100% correct, and so I'm not going to try to learn anything more about it. Don't do that. You'll set yourself up for a fall. All right, mission number three. Jesus came to defeat human misery and pain. A lot of very sick people came to Jesus. They came to him with, what all did they have? Severe pain. Anybody got pain? The demon possessed. I hope nobody here is demon possessed, but if you've got troubles in your spirit, you've got troubles in the soul, you've come to the right place if you've come to Jesus. Those having seizures, paralyzed. And guess what he did? He healed them. He came to alleviate human suffering. And we see here there are several places in the Bible where he he really he really did a number on some people in front of everybody. This, this one up here, this is one of my favorite stories. There was a house, and Jesus was inside the house. He was teaching, dialoguing with a bunch of people. And they were bringing to him all kinds of sick people. But the crowd was so big that they couldn't get this one guy. He was on a stretcher, all right? How do you get a guy on a stretcher through a big crowd like that? You just can't do it. So there's only one opening, the roof. Let's get this guy on the roof, all right? And I just wonder, who are these friends of his? They are so committed. They're, yeah, I have a feeling they must have all been guys that worked together. And just recently, this guy was in an accident, and now he's paralyzed. And now we all feel like we've got to do everything we can for this guy, our friend. What can we do? So they start taking off roof tiles, clear everything out, and they start lowering him down on rope. And Jesus looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven. All right? And remember... Uh, two things about that. Obviously, he came for healing, but Jesus, heal, uh, Jesus forgave him. First things first, get your sins forgiven before you seek healing for your body. But in these days, remember, all people, all people would see sin and sickness and suffering together. 
you don't get sick, you don't get paralyzed, you don't do something like unless you did evil and the Lord afflicted you with it. That is absolutely the way that they saw it. And Jesus, he's been dropping down in front of Jesus. And so in front of everybody, in front of a whole crowd of people who think, what did this guy do to deserve this? Jesus, first of all, says, your sins are forgiven. I don't know that he was paralyzed because of a sin. But everybody certainly perceived it that way. And so Jesus says, well, first things first. Let's, let's rehab the heart, the mind, and the reputation of this guy right here. And now everybody gets upset, uh, or, or a bunch of, relig- bunch of clergy, okay? The clergy all get upset because of it. Because how in the world did somebody come out here and forgive sins? How dare Jesus forgive his sins? And Jesus said, all right, hey, rise up and walk. Let's just, let's just see if I have, if you think I don't have the authority, Let's just test it. Rise up and walk. So he rises up and walks. So he shuts everybody up there. Incredible story. It's a wonderful story. He alleviates this guy's human pain and suffering. Blind guy over here. The kid down here. Uh, this is the kid that his father brings. This is right after the transfiguration. They bring him to Jesus. Uh, they bring, they bring, the father brings the kid to the disciples, and he says he falls in the well sometimes. He falls in the fire sometimes. He's got some kind of an evil spirit that's trying to kill him. Please. The disciples can't do anything drives the demon out. Human, human misery and pain, all gone. Now, what can we do? First of all, bring your misery, bring your pain, bring your suffering to Jesus, okay? Bring it to Jesus. And I would say boldly ask for healing. Boldly ask for healing, all right? But remember Paul, who boldly asked for the Lord to take some affliction away, and the Lord didn't take it away. But the Lord said, I'm going to use this. My the work that I would do will be completed in you with this. And everybody will say, how in the world did a guy with this affliction do so much for the Lord? And everybody will know that it was the Lord that did it. And when you see people in misery, in suffering, and in pain out there, I want you to do what Jesus did. I want you to do everything you can to help them. Pray for them. Pray for their healing. If the healing doesn't come, what do you do? You pray for them anyway. You sit with them. You comfort them. You talk to them. Offer humor. Offer anything you've got. Write a card. There are a lot of, there's a lot of ways human beings suffer out there. And I would love it if everybody in this church knew somebody. There are plenty of suffering people out there. And you say, you know what? I'm going to make that person my mission. That person is miserable. They've been miserable for years. I'm going to be their Jesus. I'm going to pray for them all the time. I'm going to comfort them all the time cards for them all the time. I'm going to do anything I can for this person. Even if I've got my own suffering, I want to say, how can I put my suffering aside? Lord, help me cope with my suffering enough to deal with this other person and their suffering. When I think of human suffering in the world, I think of uh, several different ministries out there that have got to be some of the hardest ministries in the world, like Human Trafficking Rescue Ministry in Southeast Asia. All right? There, there have been a few people that I've met that I've said, oh, you are perfect. There's a woman in, in a church in Oklahoma. I just said, oh, you'd be perfect. I want you to do that. I want you to go to Thailand and work on this. She was tough. She was sweet, but she was tough. And it would take a tough person to say, I'm going to get into the seediest business in the world. But I'm going to get in there and I'm going to bless people. Anybody who wants to work with people trying to get out of addictions, trying to get out of prostitution, trying to get out of the worst life possible, 
any of you want to do that, you've got my backing. I'll get you anything I can, I can to get you into those tough, tough ministries. But if you can't do that, we've got, we got a couple of ladies over here that are volunteer hospice chaplains. What do they do? They go to people in the evening of their lives. The sun is about to set, and they say, I'm going to sit and watch the sunset with you. I'm going to sit here with you. I'm going to pray for you while you are going through a serious thing. And I'm going to offer humor. I'm going to write a card. I'm going to do any, anything you can do to help people in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their misery. Please, I want you to do it. It's what Jesus did. So with Jesus, what is it? When we learn what Jesus did, the command is go and do likewise. So go and defeat ignorance. Defeat ignorance in your own life by learning everything that God has revealed to mankind. Learn it. Defeat ignorance in your own life. And when you hear people out there talking about something, doing something, and you say, oh gosh, if they only knew, make sure they know. With all the love and courage and tact that you've got, work to defeat ignorance in their life so that they don't make the same kinds of mistakes that you've seen ruin other people. Reveal to them who is God, what does God want. And when you hear people with a, a sophomore grasp on who God is and what God wants. Intervene. Engage. And with, again, all the love, courage, and tact that you've got, start talking to them and ask them questions. I read a book recently. It's a very good book, but I think the title's misleading. The book is called So You Don't Want to Go to Church Anymore. And I think John has read it, uh, and Sue Walters gave it to me. It's a great book. The title's misleading. What happens is at the beginning of it, this guy who's an associate pastor in a church uh, he's frustrated, and he's pulling his hair out, and he meets this guy. And this guy has a great understanding of who the Lord is and what the Lord wants. And he totally reorients church ministry and even the Christian walk, Christian life, and who Jesus is to this guy. And it upsets the apple cart, let me tell you. But the guy comes out of it much healthier believer. And so for you, defeat misunderstanding. Again, by reading this book. Again, by asking questions for people. Be the Jesus who engages with people. When you see them engaging or repeating or living by a misunderstanding of who God is and what God wants, start talking to them with all the love and courage and tact that you've got. And when you see people uh, in misery, do something, whatever you can do. Give to the food pantry. Come to see all. Tell people about celebrating. Offer them some humor. Offer them some comfort. Offer them a prayer. Individually, as a church, this is what we want to do. We want to make sure that everybody out there has heard the name of Jesus. We want to make sure that everybody out there gets their wrong view of Jesus righted. And whenever we see people suffering, we want to jump right in the middle of it and do everything we can. So take the roof tiles off lower them right there in front of Jesus. If they can't get to Jesus, we get to Jesus to them. Okay? Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for revealing yourself to us. We don't live in ignorance anymore. We thank you, Lord, for engaging with us uh, with mercy and righting all of our wrong views of you. 
heal our misery, to heal our pain, and to help us cope with whatever pain we're in now. Help us to be like you in the ministry that we do in this church. And bless us as we go forward in our next sermon series on the lives of our